0: Church, uh, if you will turn with me to Genesis 1-1, if you need help finding that, go to the beginning, and don't turn backwards. As John said, we are starting a sermon series on the book of Genesis, explain a little bit more about what that's going to look like uh, here this morning as we... Move into uh, our our text, but let's start simply by beginning in the beginning. Genesis chapter one, verse one. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these verses, this verse, and as we'll see this morning, certain words out of this verse. This is a verse that we all know. This is a verse that our culture knows. But as we just sung, Lord, impress upon us what we ought to know so that we may pass it on to our children, to our children's children. Let these words be words that are not just a story. These are words that are not the words that we pass over to get to the next thing, but words that are fundamental and foundational Not just for our understanding of Genesis, not just for our understanding of the Bible, but for our understanding of you. So bless us this morning, Lord, as we open your word. Illuminate it with your Holy Spirit. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're actually only going to focus on four words this morning the beginning of the beginning of the beginning we're focusing on the words, in the beginning, God. This is not going to be the way that we go through the book of Genesis, I promise. But this is the way we're going to start the book of Genesis. Because one of the temptations that we can run into as we're studying the book of Genesis is that we can fly through this verse because we want to get to the parts where we see the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the fish, and all of those things. We want to quickly get to the garden. We want to meet us. We want to see Adam. We want to see Eve. And as terrible as it is, we also kind of want to see the serpent. We want to see that that situation then give way to the flood and Babel and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the amazing story of Joseph that goes into the end of the the book of Genesis. There is so much in the book of Genesis. There are so many stories, there are so many truths, and as I mentioned earlier, there are so many foundational aspects Of who we are and what we know and what we believe that we find in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. But we can't run past these first few words because this establishes why. This establishes what and most importantly this establishes who. Because it's not in the beginning trees and lions and gardens and serpents. It's not in the beginning Man, it isn't in the beginning Adam or in the beginning Abraham, it's in the beginning God. We're going to be talking about all those things in the coming weeks. We're going to get to the, the nature of the heavens, the nature of the earth, all of the amazing things that we need to know, we need to understand, the things that teach us about what God has created. And so often, as we've encountered in our lifetimes, the lifetimes of, of our parents and grandparents and great grandparents, core truths that define why what we understand about creation as revealed to us in God, by God in Scripture is radically different than what we understand from the world's interpretation of what we see around us. But before we get to all of those things, these wonderful truths, these amazing stories that we pass on to our children, true stories, but stories nonetheless, an understanding of the natural world around us, we have to start with the true first presupposition of Scripture, in the beginning, God. And this establishes an important way of understanding Scripture. We can think of it as story and theology together. Now, this word story, I've heard it countless times. We shouldn't use the word story when we're talking about the Bible because stories are Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and things like that. And those aren't earmuffs, children. Those aren't real but at the same time, story is how we communicate anything. Story is how we, we talk about what we did yesterday. It is a story. And you may be very familiar with uh, some very, very insightful uh, comments from authors like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien about the idea of stories and, and as stories of the Bible as true myth. They are true, but just like pagan societies have myths that undergird what they believe and what they do, Scripture is a true myth that undergirds and drives what we believe and what we do. This was instrumental in their, in their composition of works like The Hobbit and, and Lord of the Rings and The Chronicles of Narnia, that they are showing these things as myths that are not true that reflect the true myth the true story of biblical history and so it's appropriate to call these things story it's the idea of narrative it's communicating to us where the world came from it's in it's it's communicating to us what God has done with people in ages past And so we like to think of looking at Scripture, starting in Genesis, with story and theology together. We know the process. We know what happened. But it's what we would call redemptive historical theology. We are looking at what God did in Genesis 1, and it's not divorced or separated from what he does in Genesis 2 and 3. It's not separate from what he does in Exodus, and it certainly isn't separate from what he does in the New Testament It all flows together. The entirety of Scripture is predicated upon what we learn in Genesis, both Old Testament and New. We call this redemptive historical theology, the story and theology together. It's how we need to read the Bible, not as disparate parts, not like an encyclopedia, but as one cohesive entity. And Genesis 1 through 3, as John said earlier, really sets the stage for how we read the rest of Genesis, how we read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, how we read the Old Testament, and how we read the entirety of the Bible. But more than that, Genesis 1 through 3 truly defines how we understand reality, how we understand all things, and that's something that will inevitably become clear as we move through this sermon series. In the beginning, God so a few things here, there's two words, I mean really we're not going to spend a lot of time on in or the, I will reassure you we're not going to do that, but the words beginning in God are so important, because the word beginning sometimes gives us the, the, um, the perception that this is talking about the very first thing. This is not the very first thing. This is the very first thing for our intents and purposes, This is the very first thing for what we see, for what we know. You can't go back any further. There is no way that humanity can go back before this beginning. We get glimpses of it, but all of those glimpses give us images of is the second concept that we come across in these four verses. God. That's all we know about before the beginning. When we understand the beginning... We know that God was there before that. But for our purposes, we can't go any further back than that. So it's almost as if you were to walk to the edge of a cliff. And when you get to the edge of a cliff, you can see the horizon. and You can't see any further past that horizon. You know there's something back there, but that there's no physical way that you can move to a point where you can see that. That is kind of like what Genesis 1-1 is. In different ways, in different parts of the text of Scripture, we get glimpses of things that happened before the beginning. Certainly the most profound one is the fact that in a perfect triune relationship with one another, Father, Son, and Spirit covenanted that they would provide salvation to those who would believe. This this was the, the idea of God's people being foreordained before the foundation of the world. We understand that there was perfect union between Father and Son before the world was created. But just like standing at the edge of a cliff, we really can't see clearly what is over that horizon. One of the foremost pastors of the early church, John Chrysostom, said, let us accept what is said with much gratitude in speaking of Genesis 1-1, not overstepping the proper limit nor busying ourselves with matter beyond us. This idea that we could be crazy speculating what things are like over that horizon. But when we, we go to the edge of that cliff, we turn around and realize that the entirety of eternity forward is still waiting for us. So we can spend our time thinking about what we can't see or we can look down at the firm ground beneath our feet and all of the paths that have lay, been laid from the beginning to today. That is how we need to see the beginning in Genesis one one. That's how we think in redemptive historical theological terms. So in the beginning, God. We could talk about the the, the word God, the word Elohim, and I think it would be prudent to mention this, and we'll probably bring it up in a couple of weeks as we get more into creation, particularly in the creation of man. But this is where we we are introduced to God in Scripture. Scripture starts with God. It doesn't start with the formless and void world like we'll talk about next week. It doesn't start with creation as we'll talk about in the coming weeks. And it certainly doesn't talk with man. It starts with God. And that means that Genesis is about God. Genesis is about God. Creation only makes sense because of God. If we were to just drop in in the middle of a narrative and say, and then there were lions and tigers and bears... We might say, oh my, but we wouldn't know how they got there. We wouldn't understand the firm earth beneath their feet. Creation only makes sense because of God. God existed before creation. The beginning of the heavens and the earth only makes sense if we understand that the heavens and the earth were put there by someone. Psalm 89 says this The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. The world and its fullness, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Now again, this is putting it in the terms of creation. And this is one of the really difficult things for understanding God. God being spirit is hard enough. We really struggle with the idea of understanding things that we can't see, if things that we can't quantify, things that we can't we can't visualize. Um, those things are very difficult for us to understand. But not only is God's spirit, but God is eternal. If the spirit is hard for you to comprehend, then think about what was before your, your you, and then what was before that, and what was before that, and what was before that. This is where the human brain starts to smoke and maybe uh, starts to uh, want you to shut down if you hadn't have enough coffee. We can't comprehend God because we can't comprehend spirit. We can't comprehend him in fullness, but we can comprehend him sufficiently. But oftentimes, what scripture does to communicate to us God's, God's not only his, his um, otherness, but how great he is, is some of these terms, like we just read in Psalm 89, the north and south you have created them. This is just another great example of... How, how do you create a direction? How do you create time? How do you create space? It's almost easy for us to understand that God created matter because we kind of know what it looks like for matter to not be and then to be. But to create the space in which matter even exists, to create the idea that there is spatial direction between different pieces of matter. This is beyond my understanding from a physics standpoint. But this is what we see, that God created the north and the south. The psalmist uses this language to communicate to us the grandeur of God, how big he is, how much, of, of, how much wisdom and how much of significance is placed in our need to understand who God is. But beyond that, he existed before these things. In Psalm 90, it says, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting you are god so church genesis is about god again we quickly get into us we quickly get into the things that we see but if we if we too quickly get to that point then we lose sight of the fact that we are meant to understand who god is and what god has done more than understand the thing that God has done. If we understand creation in a wonderful way, but we don't understand God as the creator, we are simply someone who adheres to intelligent design, but doesn't understand the designer. If we understand Abraham and Isaac and Jacob very, very well, then we are a wonderful pre-historical Judean uh, scholar, but we don't understand the one who had relationship with them and brought them into a place where they were meant to be. We need to understand God. And so frequently, as I said before, we only try to understand God in relationship to us. And so uh, one of the the, the phrases that you might hear in, in evangelicalism is that the Bible is God's love letter to us. And I understand kind of where that's coming from. But the Bible is about God. It's God's revelation of Himself to us. It is more of the presentation of a great lover to his beloved than it is a love letter talking about us in all cutesy terms. And we are introduced to that great lover of his beloved in Genesis 1:1. So are there questions about what comes before? Are there questions about the nature of God? Are there questions about all the aspects of his immensity and his eternity and his immu- immutability, the fact that he doesn't change, all of these things? There are plenty of questions about these things. But what is important? What is being communicated to us in Genesis 1.1? It's that God is. In the beginning, God. This is what we have to understand. This has to be a, a, a foundation for us before we move on. We understand that God is before we understand that God then reveals himself to man. God doesn't exist simply to be our God. Do we understand that? God doesn't exist to be our God. God existed before we were even a thing. God is self-existent. Now, we understand God and we know God in relationship to us, but he doesn't need us. We are contingent upon him We are dependent upon him. He is not dependent upon us. This ought to have significant ramifications in everything that we do. This needs to influence the way that we read scripture. This needs to influence the way that we worship. This needs to influence the way that we parent. This needs to influence our evangelism. These things are so essential. If we get Genesis 1-1 wrong and we put ourselves before God somehow then we can define worship in the way that we want to define worship. We can define Scripture in the way that we want to define Scripture because it puts us at that same presuppositional, first-fact, truth level as God. We understand that God is, then God reveals himself to us. That has to be the priority. That has to be the order. And that is what we get in Genesis 1-1. So first, Genesis is about about God. Secondly, Genesis being the first book of the Bible, and you'll find find agreement of this in virtually every sect of Christianity and even in Judaism, Genesis as the first book of the Bible. The Bible is about God. Now, this might sound very redundant from what we just talked about, but it's important to understand this. Genesis being the first book, and the, the primary way that we come into Genesis is understanding that God is... We understand that the Bible is about God. The Bible only makes sense because of God. And this works at multiple levels. We understand later that we, under, that we can um, comprehend Scripture because of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So in that sense, the Bible only makes sense because of God, because we need God's illuminating Spirit to explain and reveal His truth as found in His revealed Word to us. But more than that, as we alluded to a moment ago, Scripture only makes sense with God as the main character. So this is something that actually we included in the handout for children this morning, and it's something that I would encourage you to think about later this week. When we talk about story, we talk, about, again, we, you know, fast forward a few, a few chapters in Genesis, we get to Abraham. And if we can go back to the time of flannel graph, we can pretend I have flannel graph. What happened? Well, you put Abraham up there, and you had Abraham maybe in Ur of the Chaldees, and then you had Abraham trotting over to the promised land where he was supposed to go, and then you had Abraham and you had Isaac, and you had all of these characters and all of these figures pictured before us on a lovely flannel board. And although God is using those people, who is the main character of that story? It's quick and easy to identify Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and think about the miracle that God provides a ram up on the mountain where God sees. And all of those things, those become important because we can tangibly see them. But who is the one who is the main focus of the story? It's God. Abraham is a supporting character. Isaac is a supporting character. The ram is a supporting character. The thicket in which the ram was stuck was a supporting character. These are important things, but they are secondary to the main character of the story, the God who is revealing himself to a people. God, help us if we put ourselves as the main character of the story. But that is our predisposition. As people, we read ourselves into the Bible, and we've seen what that has done in our day. We have seen what that has done to the church, where we insert ourselves into Scripture and say, God wants me to be happy, which is true, but it's in context of his covenant relationship with us. But God wants me to be happy. God wants me to get from his words what I need and what I want, the Bible only makes sense when we place God as the main character, the central figure, the one who stands tall. God, and particularly God and the cross, need to have a, a cruciform image on every page of our text. The Bible only makes sense because of God, and Genesis 1-1 defines who God is. Joel Beeke, a, a prominent Puritan scholar who's Uh, done just great works and bringing some kind of buried treasures of the last two to 300 years of Christian literature into the present, writes this in talking about the Puritan's perspective on Genesis 1. He says, While modern evangelicalism claims John 3.16 as its text, the Puritan would more likely cite Genesis 1.1 to show how everything that happened since is part of what God has designed for his own glory. Theology is meaningless apart from a true understanding of God. You think about even what we did this morning in in our catechism and in our confession, that we can't jump to the good news without establishing the bad news. We can't tell people about a Savior unless they understand they need saving. But the idea of a Savior, the idea of saving, it depends on Core presuppositional objective truth. And that is not found in us. It's not found in the creation. It's found in one who is transcendent, who did the creating and has revealed himself to us. Genesis 1:1 is as important in evangelism as John 3:16, because it establishes that God is other. It establishes that the law. God is the lawgiver. And it establishes that God is the one who has not only fulfilled the law, but gives us opportunity to know him through that. So the Bible only makes sense because of God. We can't make the Bible about the history of the cosmos. We can't make this a a, a kind of a sanctified history book. We can't make this a sanctified uh, science book. And I think that's one of the things that we'll talk about in the coming weeks as it relates to the nature of creation. If we try to find biological, geological truths in Genesis 1 through 3, then we are going to be disappointed because that was not the intention. If we try to understand the, the vastness of space and, or, or the, the minute nature of the structure of a molecule, we are going to be sorely mistaken because that is God's, not his intention As much as the church would have liked that over the last uh, century to have proof texts uh, regarding the particulars of the nature of creation, that isn't the purpose. The purpose is about revealing God to us. If Genesis and creation are about God, the Bible can't be about creation. It isn't about what is temporal. It is about what is eternal. And if we quickly blow past Genesis 1-1, and, and lose the fact of God as that first presupposition of us coming to the Bible, then we run afoul of one of the major sins that we see in our culture today, but that has plagued creation ever since the fall. Romans one twenty five says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Now, no, no evangelical church would admit we're worshipping the creature. We're worshiping the creation. But if we give the creation undue focus and we, we, we think about it divorced and separate from God, then we have a Christless creationism. We have a, a Christless and a godless uh, intelligent design. We have a Christless and godless understanding of how God worked, quote, throughout history. And we only hone in and key in on, quote, unquote, important points. The cross, the second coming things like that. Not understanding that God is the God of every minute in as much as he is the God of every molecule. So we can't make the Bible about the history of the cosmos. We can't make it about the history of creation. And we certainly can't make the Bible about the history of man because we're not that great. You know, Genesis 3, we'll get to here in a minute, says, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. That That's a very stark contrast from from in the beginning God. It establishes who God is, sovereign, transcendent, yet at the same time revealing himself to us, yet we are dust. And that is, I mean, that's not to diminish our our spirit, particularly our spirit when regenerated and brought into union with Christ. But from a, a, a relative standpoint, God is so high above, and we are dust. He literally formed. Adam from the dust. The Bible is about God. It only makes sense because of God. It's not about the the, the tangible cosmos that we can touch and we can feel. It's not about us because there's none righteous, not even one. We certainly aren't the main characters of the story. Creation, Genesis, and the Bible are all about God, not about man. So Genesis is about God. The Bible is about God. And thirdly. Genesis 1.1 informs us of the fact that all things are about God. All things are about God. Everything makes sense because of God and without him, nothing makes sense. Everything makes sense because of God and without him, nothing makes sense. I use a very extreme example. Whenever a tragedy strikes... Whenever you have train derailments in, in India, like we've seen this week, whenever we have wildfires like we're seeing just to the north in, in Canada, where we're even feeling the, the, the negative fallout of that, whenever we hear a personal story of tragedy or trauma, whenever we get that phone call with that diagnosis or the notification of someone who's passed, how do we make sense of that? Where do we go to for answers? Is there a a, a rock in in which we can crack it open and take a microscope to it and we can find an answer there? Is there a guru on a mountaintop or is there a, a sage in our local town or is there an advice column in a newspaper or online where we can get a satisfactory answer to any of these most difficult questions? And the answer is no, because every one of these things is creation. Every one of these things is fallible. Every of one of these things is temporal. Every one of these examples is something that is not self-sustaining, that cannot give us a comprehensive picture of why things happen, and certainly is not the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everything makes sense because of God. Our highest of highs and our lowest of lows. God is the one who redeems the most difficult situations. God is the one who explains the purpose of creation and explains the purpose of us in creation. Without him, nothing makes sense. If you want a real riveting Sunday afternoon, I'm telling you, this will knock your socks off, clear, clear your plans. Read some of the, the philosophy of, of the late 19th and early 20th century. Where you, you have you know, Marx and Rousseau and all of these characters that have a really high view of man. They don't have a high view of man. There's meaninglessness, nihilism, all of these, the, 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 treating people as basically base creatures. And this is the answer that you get when you divorce God from reality. This is the actual natural result of living as if God is dead. Because without God, nothing makes sense. We are, as a, as a author that I, I appreciate says often, without God, we are ugly bags of mostly water. We are a biological happenstance. And so the idea of meaning and purpose falls away without God, nothing makes sense. God is the fact that establishes all truth. He is the norming norm. Everything is built off of him. There is nothing that is needed to come alongside God to define how reality works. God is the, as we see here in Genesis 1.1, we would say the presupposition of all reality. God is the only thing that we need to bring to the table to understand us, to understand the Bible. Now, does God give us a lot of other things, our own faculties, his Holy Spirit, more importantly, each other, his word, to understand him and understand things? Absolutely. But the fact of the matter is, church, is that those things can and might fall away. We might lose access to part of God's word. Heaven forbid that happen. We might lose access to each other. Heaven forbid that happen. We may lose access to our own personal faculties. And with age or with injury, that may very well happen. But that does not take away who God is. It establishes the fact that we are fallible, that we are temporal, but he is unchanging, and he is eternal. Apologist and theologian of the early 20th century, Cornelius Van Til, wrote that reason and fact cannot be brought into fruitful union with one another except upon the presupposition of the existence of God and his control over the universe. Reason and fact cannot be brought into re- to fruitful union with, un- with one another. Without God, without objective truth, then your thoughts, and this is where things get really m- morbid and tragic, thinking that people believe these things, then your thoughts are nothing more than a fever dream. Then your thoughts are nothing more than the same biomechanical processes that causes the butterfly to flit across the window or for the frog to hop across the pavement. And just as much as we would say, oh, that's unfortunate, if that frog were to be squished on your way out... There really is no more meaning to your thoughts than the frog thoughts if we live in a world where fact and reason are completely separate because it's all biomechanical process. But we know that's not true. Christians above all know that that's not true. And the the truth is that the world knows that is not true. But the world tries to suppress the reality that God is the one who is the presupposition of all existence and that he controls the universe. In many ways, one of the big questions, what's the meaning of life? And just like Genesis 1-1 defines this, the very first question of the Westminster Catechism defines this well. God is specifically glorifying him and enjoying him forever is the meaning of life. It's God. It's not us. It's not our happiness. It's not glorifying ourselves. It's not enjoying creation forever, it's glorifying him and enjoying him forever. So all things are about God. But in the Bible, in Genesis, God reveals himself to us. And this is where we can't, as Christians, despair. This is where understanding the, the, the magnificence and the grandiose nature of God and his transcendence doesn't leave us flat on our faces on the floor. But just like confession leads to assurance of grace, understanding who God is in the scope of the redemptical, redemptical, that's a word, redemptive historical nature of the text, we understand who God is and how big he is and his high standards and his perfections and all of the superlatives that go with his being. But then we know that in the Bible, God reveals himself to us. He reveals himself to Adam and Eve here in a few chapters. He reveals himself in a dramatic way to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He reveals himself to Moses. He reveals his power before the Egyptians. He reveals himself to the prophets and to Israel. But then, for all intents and purposes, the most profound revelation of God throughout history came 2,000 years ago when God himself enters that creation, a unique Fact of all world religions, a unique aspect of all philosophies that have ever existence. The very one who created all things stepped into that creation and revealed himself fully and perfectly. And here's one of the most striking things, church, that when we meet Jesus, when we meet Jesus in God's word, in John 1.1, Now, you probably start in Matthew, and that's okay, but in John, when we meet Jesus, we see this beautiful parallel, in the beginning was the Word. So everything that we just said about God, again, all the superlatives, his grandiose nature, his majesty, his transcendence, all of those things that seem so hard to grasp, things that border on philosophy and tricky, difficult theology, all of those things are now encapsulated in a man walking around in first century Palestine, sitting down, having fish, drinking wine with his friends. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Purposefully, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John takes Genesis 1-1 and he inserts it in John 1-1. And we know that parallel. We see that parallel. The first century audience hearing these words and receiving this gospel would have seen this, would have understood it. And for everything that they knew about Christ And his deity now in this text, we're getting it underlined, highlighted, magnified off the page that the very God that was unknowable and far off and in fire and in smoke at the top of Mount Sinai was now the same man that they walked with, the same man that they cried with, the same man that they laughed with, the same man who died on a cross for their sins. And we know it's the same today in Colossians 1. He, talking of Christ, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Genesis is about God. The Bible is about God. All things are about God. All reality is about God. And we know that when we see Christ not only as Savior, but Christ as Lord. Christ, who is the one who not only died for his church, brought us into a redemptive relationship with him, but is the same one who is holding all of creation together. The very fact that that your synapses in your brain are doing what they're doing right now, the multifaceted complex nature of your own brain chemistry that we can't and probably will never understand is being held together by the very same one who died on a cross for your sins. It's a beautiful reminder that the God that we encounter in the first few verses of Genesis 1 is the God that we are about to encounter when we take the Lord's Supper. The God that we encounter in Genesis 1 is the same God that we will become face-to-face with when Christ returns. This is the great and beautiful picture of redemptive historical theology, of understanding that Genesis 1-1 really lays the groundwork on which the cross stands and why, which every step that we take, every word that we say, Every thought that we think is on that ground that God has created. And so, with that being said, then our, then our, our, our catechism question, it, a great light is shined upon, shined upon that. We have to obey perfectly and perpetually because of, of who God is. He is the one, and so he has made the rules. And so you could say that Genesis 1-3, through Genesis 1-1, the first half of Genesis 1, sets the stage not only for Genesis and the Bible and all things, but as I mentioned before regarding Puritan evangelism, Genesis 1-1, the first half of that verse, sets the stage for the gospel. In the beginning, God. And so everything else that flows from that has to be dependent upon that. We don't engage people with the gospel, the fact that Jesus Christ came to die for those sinners who could not fulfill his law on their own with one arm tied behind our back. We say that God created these laws and God created this world. God created the breath that you breathe and by breathing it as a rebel sinner, you are even violating the perfect creation that he's made. But more than that, We have violated his word in many ways in words, thought, and deed. But he sent his son. Jesus took our place and paid our price so we didn't have to. This is the seed. We'll talk about at the end of Genesis chapter 3 of how we have the seed of the gospel made explicit at the end of Genesis 3. But the seeds of the gospel, where we are now, are planted all the way in Genesis 1, understanding the sovereign and good creator God of the universe. The gospel is about God revealing himself to people by grace. The gospel is about reconciling people to himself by grace. The gospel is about being, God being the God of his people by grace. So church, as we we think about even just these first few verses, It is so easy to quickly run to all of these places that we've run to this morning. But we need to make sure that in our own minds, in our own hearts, what we do with our hands, how we worship in this place, how we conduct our duties as families and as employees and as neighbors, that we don't lose sight of the fact that the truth underneath all reality is God, in the beginning, God. If not him... Then what else? But praise Him that it is Him and that He's revealed Himself to us and that we know Him. One of the most intimate ways that He's revealed Himself to us, again, is, is in the Incarnation. And one of the most intimate moments of the Incarnation was the Lord's Supper, when even in the night before He died, Jesus gathered with His disciples. And he spent moments with them, again, enjoying bread and wine, and certainly talking about pleasant things, but also talking about difficult things. And we are working, again, in this redemptive historical arc to a day when there's no more difficult things. And when, when we have, have the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which has already been inaugurated but will one day be consummated, then we will not bring our mess to the table. We will not bring our junk to get the wine and to get the, the bread. One day, it will be taken with no reservations and no hesitations and done in a way where there is no tears and there's no hardship. But today, we live in that space. But this is God's table. This is Christ's table. And so we would invite you to come. As uh, John and, and the, the team comes up to lead us in a song, you know, come up and take the table if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you take that moment to assess where you are, and where you are might not be great this morning. To be frank, there may be difficulties that happened this week, this morning, but we're not asked to be perfect to come to the table. We're asked to be humble and to be contrite and to think of what Christ has done And even if you are confessing silently as you walk up to the table, then you are welcome. That is the gracious invitation that we receive to take of the bread and of the wine. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you are God. And as redundant as that sounds, it's important for us to remember. Because oftentimes in this life, we live as if we are the ones who are in control. Or we give control to those ones that you have ordained and treat them as if they have complete control. But we know that you are God. Lord, bless us as we work through your word, as we, in fear and in trembling, come before your righteous truth of your creation. But in this moment, Lord, if, that, if Genesis 1-1 feels so far off, be with us as you are present in spirit as your son is present in spirit as we take of the bread and take of the wine this beautiful covenant meal where we are able to touch and taste and be reminded of the blessing of your son we ask of his body broken of his blood shed for us all who believe we ask this in the name of your son amen